This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. At the close today on the FTSE, positive by 0.5%. Your movers, the positive ones. Some decent gains once again from Glencore Rio, BHP and the big miners. Up by over 2% on Glencore Rio. Up by almost 1.7%. BHP up by 2.3%. That's given a FTSE 100 a lift, a rally in the commodity market earlier on with uh, copper up by 1.3%. A bit of softness coming through to crude. Brent is 77.10 and WTI at $71. The main event, though, the Bank of England, a little bit more on that a little bit later. Sterling softer, down a half of 1%. Cable dropping back to 134.83. For the wider FX market, though, it is a weaker dollar story. The pound and the kiwi, the exception to today's rule. A little bit more on that in just a moment. Then let's get you some top stories first. Here's Charlie Pellet. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. U.S. consumer prices rose by less than forecast in April as costs for autos and airfares declined, reducing chances that inflation will run significantly above the Federal Reserve's target in coming months. Bank of America Merrill Lynch commodity strategist Francisco Blanche is raising his 2018 Brent average forecast to $70 a barrel and 75 in 2019. Right now, Brent is roughly 77 a barrel. He also says there is a risk of $100 oil. A gauge of UK home prices has dipped to its lowest in more than five years. This according to the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, with the slowdown most acute in London and the southeast. And BT Group pledging to cut 13,000 jobs, all part of a cost purge. An ITV broadcaster of hit shows Love Island and Coronation Street reported strong growth in its online ad sales and production studios business. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Uh, we live in this kind of harsh world where job cuts usually mean stock price gains. Um, we didn't get that from BT, Charlie. Um, stock down by over 7%. Absolutely correct. Down the most in 15 months on, wow. uh, on BT Group. Wow. Have you ever watched Coronation Street? You know, it's funny because, uh, first of all, who can ever forget Mrs. Sharples? Um, and, and you have to understand that, I mean, this was a show that back in the 60s, into the 70s, and, you know, for many people will tell you even today, you, you walk into someone's home. England would come to a halt wow, when the show... The, the north of England, especially. especially. It's, I mean, the, 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 you know, people don't understand the power of this program. Yeah. We, and, don't, we don't have equi- an equivalent here in the United States. No, we don't. And even my American wife, when she would come over and visit my mom, my mom yeah. was absolutely glued to the television when this show would come on. Even my wife, even for you know a period of two weeks in England, she started getting into Coronation so Street. So it's a big deal. 7, right? 7 p.m. Emmerdale, 7.30 Coronation Street, and then at 8 East Enders. Yep. Right. I'm, I'm taking it you were a fan or you were watching or well, you I couldn't avoid to, you it. Know, I used to watch a bit of it, but you couldn't avoid it either. You couldn't avoid it. That's that's the bottom line that on was, Coronation Street. That was Street. growing up in, in the UK. Charlie, yep. it's always my great to catch sir. up with Thank you. you. 
you. I love the fact that Charlie might have that accent, but he's actually a Brit. Um, <laughs> and it's great to get this insight from him. Charlie, thank you. Even if I do occasionally say soccer instead of football. Well, we're mate. not going to make that mistake during I'm the not. World Cup. Never. Charlie Pellet, thank you. We begin with the top story, the Bank of England decision. The Bank of England voting 7-2 to two to hold the interest rate unchanged. The Bank of England Governor Mark Carney discussed inflation, monetary policy and the outlook for the UK economy, earlier saying he is clouded by a Brexit uncertainty. Here is uh, some of his opening statement at the Bank of England's monetary policy briefing in London. Three months ago, the MPC said that an ongoing tightening of monetary policy over the next few years would be appropriate to return inflation sustainably to its 2% target. That guidance was explicitly conditioned on the economy evolving broadly in line with the committee's February inflation report projections. In the period since then, the economy hasn't fulfilled those conditions. Growth at 0.1% in the first quarter of this year was much weaker, and inflation at 2.5% in March was notably lower than we had projected in February. The key question is whether this softness will prove temporary or persistent. In other words, was the weakness in the first quarter due to the weather or the climate? The MPC's central assessment is that it largely reflects the former, and that the underlying pace of growth remains more resilient than the headline data suggest. The period of adverse weather hit construction particularly badly, and it weighed on activity more broadly as people struggled to work and to make it into the shops. In contrast, the labor market has remained reassuringly strong. In the three months to February, employment rose by more than we had projected, and the unemployment rate fell to 4.2%, the lowest rate in over 40 years, and a touch below the MPC's estimate of the natural rate. Private sector wages have picked up. Adding to the positives, job-to-job flows are back to their pre-crisis averages, and there's widespread evidence in employment surveys of a tightening labour market. The overall economic climate in the UK looks little change to the MPC thus far. In particular, we have long forecast a rotation in demand towards net trade and business investment and away from household consumption. This is what has happened, and we expect it to continue. UK exporters remain in a sweet spot, with sterling down 15% in anticipation of a Brexit that has not yet happened, particularly with a new transition agreement that extends unfettered access to EU markets until the end of 2020. Although they've eased slightly, the European and global economies are growing faster than trend and are projected to remain robust over the forecast period. As a consequence, net trade is projected to continue supporting UK growth over the next few years. Bank of England Governor there, Mark Carney, after the uh, inflation report came out earlier in the news conference. Joining me to discuss, Tim Craighead, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Danny Berger, Markets and Quants reporter. Uh, Danny, let's begin with you. Sterling is just not buying this kind of idea that a rate hike is coming anytime soon from the Bank of England. Why is the Bank of England failing to convince much of this market on its interest rate guidance? I think some of it has to do, at least to some of the investors I've been speaking to, that some of the hawkishness coming, uh, their attempt to sound hawkish, really confirmed a lot of suspicions that they were trying to firm up the pound. Uh, But it really became clear that the BOE is in no position to hike anytime soon, even though uh, they may desperately want to. And and, and that's really pushing the pound lower and uh, guilt yields are falling as well because of that. And it's been the story over the last couple of weeks. The the Bank of England governor himself back 
backing off from the idea of a rate hike at this month's meeting and the data pretty much confirming that stance. Tim Craighead, central bankers want us to be data dependent and then when it suits them they want us to ignore the data. It's very hard to understand their forward guidance sometimes. Uh, no doubt. Um, it's an interesting case in, in, in this instance, you know, thinking about, uh, about the, uh, the FTSE 100. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, we've, we've had the beast from the east in a weak first quarter, um, but underlying fundamentals, especially on that, that uh, external aspect of the economy, are good. Um, you got to worry about Brexit at some point, but not quite yet. You know, the, the biggest thing from our vantage point at this juncture, from a, a, a UK market vantage point, is pound is weaker. It's gone from sort of hero to zero. Yeah. Um, you know, it was up 7% year on year um, through most of the first quarter, and is now basically flat year on year on a trade-weighted basis with the move that's occurred. And that's a big positive for UK stocks that get an awful lot of revenue from overseas. All of a sudden, the headwind goes to at least neutral and possibly at some point a tailwind. So, you know, that's uh, that's a pretty interesting development. Tim Craker, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and Danny Berger, Markets and Quants Reporter. Sticking with me, next up on the programme, we take it from the UK to Italy. The chances of a populist government ruling the country receiving a sizable boost and the market receiving a sizable injection of political risk. We'll discuss that in just a moment. You are listening to The Cable for the City of London, live on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. A decent close for the FTSE 100 today, helped out by the miners once again. Energy players kind of treading water. The FTSE up by a half of 1%. Sterling softer today, down four-tenths of 1% after doing nothing in yesterday's session, following a Bank of England non-decision and a dovish hold in the eyes of the market. 134.90, down by four-tenths of 1% on the day so far. In Italy, things getting interesting. The chances of a populist government ruling in the country receiving a sizable boost from Silvio Berlusconi as he dropped his opposition to a tie-up. After more than two months of manoeuvring between the anti-establishment five-star movement and the anti-immigrant league, four times Premier Berlusconi yielded to pressure, including from his own lawmakers, and pledged that he is open to the two parties governing together. For the equity market, it means a drop of 0.96%. For the bond market, it means a little bit of a drop there with yields higher by several basis points. Joining me to Discuss is Tim Craighead, senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Danny Berger still with me as well, markets and quants reporter. Mr. Craighead, walk me through your thoughts on this because Italy has been one of the best performing equity markets on the planet since uh, the start of the year. What's going to change with the potential government and this allegiance? Uh, it, it it certainly has been, and you know it, it's interesting because it it showed well to us from our fundamental scorecard at the beginning of the year, and it still shows pretty well. And the big story for that, the big driver of that, is normalization of banks. You know, they had a horrible uh, asset quality uh, challenge, and that is in process of continuing to to calm down. Um, Banks are almost 40% of the market there, and so that's really what matters. This is issue coming up 
uh, is intriguing because on the one hand, you think, oh, that's not good for um, for debt, for risk. Um, there's still a big government debt issue. Yeah. Um, but don't forget, you've got the ECB who continues to backstop Italian debt. And so as long as a new coalition um, isn't going to be you know, hugely successful at being really radical, even if they make populist noise. I think the market's essentially looking past it and focusing on banks and fast cars like Ferrari. And so they should, because Ferrari has a phenomenal car in Formula One. I believe, is it Barcelona? this weekend on the F1 circuit. I don't know if either of you can tell me, but I think it I'm embarrassed it I be. should know, but I can't remember. I'm going to have a look in just a moment. Um, Danny Berger, for, for the, I'm not going to ask you about F1. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. As, as an American that's just moved over to London, I doubt you have any interest whatsoever. Um, I'll get there. I know they're fast cars. That, that's about that's as far start, as my knowledge Danny. goes. That's a start. <laughs> for the market, there's this concern worldwide about re-denomination risk in Europe. And, and I'm under, my understanding of the current situation, Danny, is that this coalition, this potential government, doesn't present redenomination risk, exit risk um, for the Eurozone. Yeah, and and you know one one of the things that you do have to look at. I mean, those those market moves you cited in Italy uh, aren't aren't really remarkable, uh, and sort of the spillover effects into European stocks uh, likewise haven't been remarkable. And I think a lot of it has to do with just some other things outweighing what the this coalition might mean uh, when it comes to. Uh, local Italian assets, specifically corporate debt, uh, they have a really big home bias. Uh, so it's it's uh, unlikely that the government, uh, even though it might not be market friendly, local investors, I mean, they're they're pretty battle tested when it comes to political risk. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, Italian stocks, cheap evaluations. I think that's one of the things that's uh, enough to offset any of the overhang. And then in Europe as a whole, we are keeping an eye on economic data, whether we can yeah. have this continued synchronized global growth. And I think that becomes more important of a story here. Danny Berger, Markets and Quants reporter with uh, Tim Craighead, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Sticking with me, the Formula One report will come up in just a moment. I'll bring you the, the latest race and where that circuit will be uh, for the Formula One drivers at the weekend. Before we get there, next up on the programme, a rally in crude stalls, but is there risk ahead as Middle East tensions continue to flare? What does it mean? for the geopolitical risk premium that should be injected into commodity markets. That conversation's next. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. The moving crude shaping up as follows. Crude just a little bit softer today, down two tenths on Brent to $77.06. Down two tenths on WTI to just south of $71 at $70.99. Oil prices could rally to 100 by next year, a level not seen since 2014 as supply risks in Venezuela and Iran strain global markets. This according to Bank of America. Brent futures trading near 77 through much of today, set to reach 90 in the second quarter of 2019, according to the bank, as uh, world inventory shrink. I spoke earlier with uh, Chris Main of Citigroup. He's an all-market analyst on, on Bloomberg TV, and we began the conversation by asking him if current geopolitics puts a flaw into the current crude market. And 
and to what extent? Uh, yeah, I think it definitely put the floor uh, into the price, uh, probably close to where we are now, maybe a few dollars lower, um, until some of the uh, uh, some of the elements of the Iranian deal, uh, we have more certainty in, be it how tough is the, the U.S. going to be, what can be the response of the Europeans, the Chinese, the Indians, and potentially how big a pushback is there going to be inside Iran, um, potentially towards uh, their nuclear activities, then I think it's a difficult market right here to uh, to necessarily go short. The, the, the amount of investor fast money shorts are, are very low right now, and you're not seeing anything uh, in the very present uh, moment uh, to entice them in. So, Chris, I just want to bring some of your research to our viewers that came from Citigroup earlier this morning. Uh, the quote as follows from you guys, that this will likely test the case for the OPEC Plus to keep cuts to year-end or into 2019. U.S. pressure is likely to mount on Saudi Arabia to end the cuts as U.S. gasoline prices surge. A return to the market of OPEC Plus could be easy or it could be somewhat uncontrollable. Talk to me about how some of these geopolitical issues bleed into the discussion at OPEC, Chris. Sure, sure. So the, uh, I guess the first point is the pressures are, are going to come from the U.S. and from uh, inside Russia. So on the U.S. side, we know this is on President Trump's radar. Uh, his tweet on April 20th, where he called out OPEC essentially of, for artificially uh, lifting prices. Uh, we had comments from uh, Secretary Mnuchin yesterday saying uh, that he didn't expect any major price hikes as a result of the Iran decision, which was a bit puzzling. And he followed that up by saying some countries would be willing to increase output but he didn't uh, define which. So there's likely to be increased pressure on the U.S. side of things, especially with gasoline retail prices at four-year highs. Uh, and inside Russia as well, uh, you have the EMPs that don't really benefit from higher prices due to the tax structure. And you also have pressure from the central bank that has to uh, essentially keep um, uh, keep balancing uh, the ruble as oil price goes, uh, as the oil price climbs higher. So it's really going to be a test for, for Saudi Arabia and how how willing they are to dig their heels in to uh, maintain uh, the current level of cuts. And both them and the Kuwaitis have come out and said that they'd be looking to mitigate any uh, potential disruptions. So, again, it's there's huge uncertainties around, and so it kind of lays into the first point of um, uh, there's definitely risk premium in the price. Um, but uh, it kind of bears watching. You're listening to Chris Main of Citigroup, an oil market analyst speaking to me a bit earlier. Tim Craighead still with me, senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and Danny Berger, markets and quants reporter. Danny, what are we seeing in the oil market at the moment? Real debate I've had with several people over the last couple of days, whether this is just a short-term supply disruption phenomenon or whether there's something more sustainable on the demand side that's pushed us up over the last year. Well, one of the things also has to do with not just sort of like the mean level of where we see oil, what these uh, different geopolitical events could do to oil, but I think a lot of it has to do with the variance. And and we've seen that uh, some more volatility in the commodity market is what we tend uh, to uh, associate with some spillover effects. Uh, more so oil shocks than, you know, perhaps a, a slow rising price. But at the same time, I mean, we do see oil uh, long positions and CTFC data continue to build up. So, I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence out there that uh, a lot of folks believe that oil is going to chart higher. I mean, this $100 call from Bank of America, that that's kind of out there. But we have seen other analysts say uh, Aberdeen, for example, said $80 a barrel. I mean, so there there is an idea out there 
that it will continue to press higher. That's that's not out of the realm of possibility for a lot of analysts. Tim Craighead? Uh, we think about energy and a, a couple of elements fall out of that. Number one, it's clearly getting to be a momentum play. Uh, and if you like that, and certain investors do, go for it. Um, if, you, if you want to be long energy, think about the FTSE. Uh, huge exposure and leverage to uh, the energy markets. That's why the FTSE uh, has traded up as much as it has. And it's getting certainly uh, extended from a momentum perspective. Thirdly, um, you know, if you don't want that, that, uh, that bet, yeah. you know, think about it. Uh, and last but not least, you know, one of the sub-segments of energy that has yet to really move uh, is the oil service uh, area, uh, specifically some of the some of the the drillers, and again, if we start to see those move because they're starting to get business coming back, um, that could be quite interesting for those for that for that group. Number one, number two, that's that's the trigger for the eventual supply to be coming back along with what you think about with U.S. Shell and other sources uh, yeah. of supply that could end the party at some point. I was looking at um, high yield crude. Earlier on, and and high yield, high yield energy rather, um, just not reconciled with the, the rally we've seen in crude. Danny, equities have just started to respond to the rally in oil. Credit hasn't really. Is this a market that still doesn't really believe in this rally? I mean, it, it is pretty notable because uh, I mean, so many corporate bonds uh, are are underpinned by the price of crude. But this is just another example where we've seen a disconnect between equities and credit. Uh, One of the big stories has been uh, companies with a lot of debt that's uh, appearing in equities, that pressure there not appealing in crude. So there does seem to be uh, of two minds when it comes to the different set of investors. And, you know, they both they both can't be right. So I think where oil goes from here is going to be very important for these two markets going forward. Danny Berger, Markets and Quants reporter. Tim Craighead, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Guys, I've really enjoyed having you on the program. Thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Cable. Next up, we take it to New York, where we'll be discussing the Treasury auctions so far this week. You've been listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to you all. 5.30 in the city at a close. The FTSE 100 positive by about a half of 1%. Sterling weaker following a very confusing Bank of England news conference. Sterling down to 135 off by a third of 1%. Let's get you some top stories, shall we? It's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. Jonathan Farrell, let us begin in the United States, where consumer prices rose by less than forecast in April as costs for autos and airfares declined, reducing chances that inflation will run significantly above the Federal Reserve's target in coming months. BT Group pledging to cut 13,000 jobs as part of a cost purge that failed to impress investors, who focused instead on the bleak sales outlook and a lack of free cash flow growth driving the stock down the most in 15 months, BT Group down by about 7%. 
Next is surging after warm spring weather in Britain spurred shoppers to restock their wardrobes, a boost for UK retailers struggling with cost pressures and the rise of Amazon shares up roughly 6%. That's their highest in almost two years. And a gauge of UK house prices dripped, uh, dipped to its lowest in more than five years last month, according to the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, with the slowdown most acute in London and the Southeast. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie Pellet, thank you. That will be all those people preparing for higher interest rates, wondering what to do with their... Um their houses after the governor of the Bank of England continues to communicate, prepare for higher interest rates. Um, Lisa Bravitz, host of Bloomberg Markets, and she was my co-host this morning. Um, was. How was that for you, Lisa? It was great. I felt bad, though, for Tom because he was in therapy because the Red Sox lost. Because the lost. Red Sox lost. That, so, that and he you know, turned up at work with a really horrible cold. I mean, that was sort of sad. Classic scary. Tom Keane. <laughs> and, and can I just say... A gentleman that helps me sound a lot smarter than I actually am every single week on my TV show, Real Yield, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. London, every um, Friday. Um, Joel Levington, Director of Fixed Income Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joel, thank you for finally joining us. Thank you so much for having me, John. And the truth is out. Joel is one of the guys that makes me sound a lot smarter than I am every Friday. Yeah, so that, I appreciate that. That's impassable to do, John. That's impassable to do. You're, you're too nice to me. <laughs> you're too nice. We talked about the uh, the Treasury auctions, uh, Lisa. You and I had a discussion about them earlier. The 10s went fine. Are the 30s going to do the same? Yes. Anything else? No, just walk me through why. <laughs> spent the last week, spent the last week Look, talking about the potential for failed auctions right. in the United States because of the supply story. Did anybody actually think that was going to happen? We need to define what a failed auction is in the United well, States of okay, America look, first. Honestly, okay, right. So if, if I were going to define that, it would be very small proportion of the debt taken by indirect bidders, right? Yeah. So a huge takedown by primary dealers, basically the people who are forced to buy end up with a whole bunch of the stuff. Um, and then afterwards, the debt sells off, yields, cl- yields climb. Do I think that that kind of scenario is going to happen based on what we're seeing this week? No, it doesn't seem like that. Yesterday, we certainly did not see that with 10-year yields, uh, which actually came in right below the 3% coupon threshold that people were kind of eyeing as a psychological level. Yeah. And you you saw a huge bid from mutual funds and from you know international buyers and, and, and what have you. And then you, know, you have the CPI data today that sort of reinforces this idea that inflation isn't accelerating off the charts in some kind of uh, massive way. So you're getting compensated at, at a time when a lot of people think that there's a lot of risk out there. No indication that's going to happen anytime soon. Joel, as you know, as as you kept telling me through the whole of last year, it was a big year for credit issuance. Is this year the same as last year in terms of credit supply, whether you look at investment grade or high yield in the United States of America? No, uh, supply is definitely lower this year than last year. I I think uh, in the second half of the year, you could see a pickup because you have so many hung deals uh, that need to get financed. I Interesting. Believe, I believe there's over $1.2 trillion worth of deals that are supposed to close by year end. <laughs> Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Whoa, back up. That's really interesting. So that means that this is debt that basically is in the form of bank financing that banks will get stuck with if they can't sort of finance the deals in the bond market and get the debt off their books. That's correct. Um, but you know, I think for a large majority of these, you're talking about investment grade deals. You could look at something like uh, uh, Shire uh, last yeah. night with uh, Takeda. Uh, that's talking about $30 billion worth of new debt. 
And I think the, the more interesting story is here's another case where the rating agencies are keeping the, the credit in investment grade with leverage starting at six times. Uh, we have credit medians here at, at Bloomberg. Uh, the single B median is five and a half times. So, you know, the, the rating agencies, once again, are encouraging people to lever up as far <laughs> as far as they can. Lisa, your thoughts? I'm just still stuck. Did you say $1.2 trillion? It's amazing. Yes. Did I, did I get the denomination wrong? Trillion. So, so basically, we're so, going to have huge treasury well, funding requirements and huge credit requirements. Well, but then but then here's my here's my issue. And this is why this is so interesting. And, and I mean, wow. Okay, first of all, you have companies that are levering up. But you have bank risk that you haven't really seen. Financial system risk that perhaps isn't adequately appreciated because that $1. trillion of debt is currently being extended uh, in bank financing. It's on their books. They can get stuck with this debt. And even if it sells, okay, so so let's say there's not really a risk that it's not going to sell. But then they have they have a significant risk of, of losses if it comes in at the wrong price, right? That's true. And I, I should take a step back. $1.2 trillion is the total amount outstanding. It's not uh, that everything is going to be issued in debt, right? There are some deals that are debt and stock. Yeah. It's to say that there's a, a huge the, amount That's the total of, value of the deals. Right, exactly. Uh, so it's not going to be uh, $1.2 trillion of debt that's coming out. Do you have out. a sense of how much of it is debt? Off the top of my head, Lisa, I don't. I, but even if we said it was 50%, let's just say to, to it's take a lot a of money. It's a lot of money, it's yeah. A, it's a lot of money that is still out there. Um, that needs to get financed. So I, I do think that there is a kicker, even though uh, supply has been uh, quiet. And let's be clear here, Joel, where, where the performance has been has not been an investment grade. Is that supply dynamic the reason, one of the technical factors as to why high yield is, is outperforming investment grade this year? Well, I think if you, uh, and I, actually uh, my peer, uh, Gina Martin-Adams in, uh, in Equity Strategy, yeah. uh, just wrote about this this week about how small cap companies have been outperforming the larger caps. And I think this year you have a combination of if you are domestic, then you also have a bigger bang from the tax rate implications in terms of your cash flow. And insulation from any kind of tariff discussion. And currency risk. And so those are the companies that are outperforming. Those are your high yield names. Um, where you have more more pop that's going on. And also, obviously, you have a duration differential uh, in the types of issuance that uh, that's going to happen. So I think you put those things together, and that's why you have a better performance in high yield this year. Can I just say the average IQ of the room went up when, when Joel walked in? I mean, I'm speaking for myself, Lisa, not for you. <laughs> it's I'm okay. Just, I'm just saying, I'll punch you in the arm I, afterwards. I, I, I meant it when I said Joel <laughs> genuinely makes me smarter. Oh, Totally. Week. By the way, uh, Joel, you have been super smart on Tesla, and you've been talking a lot about how Tesla needs to needs to get some kind of new kind of funding uh, before the first quarter of next year. We just had a guest on Bloomberg Radio who was saying, if they don't, they will go bankrupt. They basically, he's saying he 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 is expecting bankruptcy for Tesla. I thought you would like that. Well, that I I do not expect bankruptcy for Tesla. Um, you know what? My wife actually took me to a Pink concert uh, a couple of weeks ago. You went <laughs> yeah. to a pink concert. I went to a pink concert. John, I actually have to show you this picture because this I have a great. picture. I can't of, wait to see it. Of the bathroom at the at the men's bathroom at the Prudential Center uh, was completely empty. That's yeah, of my, course that's it was. My, yeah, of course it was. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. That's my picture. But you, you know, know think, I've only ever been to one music concert. Can any of you guess what, what it was? You've only, only been to one? one music concert. Do you know whose music concert it was? Have a guess. Just Rolling guess. Stones. The Stones. 
No. <laughs> Brit- Britney Spears. Ah, very nice. <laughs> Obviously. Now, and I'll tell you why in the commercial break. Bloomberg's Lisa Bramlett and Joel Levinson sticking with me next up on the program. Some really odd issues in 2017 and what it means for 2018. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. You listen to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.30 in the city. Really weird year for debt auctions. We've talked a little bit about supply. Um, Last year, Tesla came to the market at the end of August. It was a record low yield for that maturity, that credit rating. It had a coupon of 5.3%. Argentina also came to market with a century bond. And we've seen that 11 months later, Argentina is looking for help from the IMF. As for that Tesla corporate bond, well, I can tell you where that's trading. Right here, right now, it trades with an 87 handle and an implied yield of um, 7.575% from that 5.3% coupon. So what has happened in the last year and just how frothy were things in 2017? Um, Joel, you and I had a little chat about this earlier um, yes. in, in my planning meeting. <laughs> and I'm just wondering how much froth there still is in the debt market. I think there still is, uh, you know, if uh, if Tesla and the reason, uh, by the way, I was using the pink uh, conversation was because she has a song that says, uh, you know, when you have a flame, someone's going to get burned. And that's what you have here. Uh, you have a flame not only in a brilliant CEO. I could just picture you at the concert with your wife. Yes, uh, I'm thinking of thinking of the bond market. Thinking of she, headlines for the research reports. But, but the lovely and talented Rebecca is dancing around and enjoying herself. I'm taking notes on Tesla and how this uh, song plays into the Tesla stuff and how I'm trying to get that bit up on the, up on the terminal. But the fact is, is what you have here is a company that is bleeding cash, much like WeWorks, uh, that issued and also has gotten crushed uh, yep. since being issued, um, and that needs more and more liquidity uh, and a management that is quite stubborn to just get ahead of themselves and do the right thing for all stakeholders, because that conversation, even for equity folks, has become liability management and not all the growth opportunities that they have. Uh, so really, it's a, it's a balance sheet that needs to get repaired and uh, will stay a story until they you know like uh, fix it. Lisa, your thoughts? I just can't believe that people have closed their eyes to so many things that just seem so obvious like at the time yeah and, and this isn't the benefit of 2020 no this is, this, this is everyone at the time when this stuff was issued said this is crazy like we works we work too i mean that was the same thing everyone said you know what is community backed EBITDA? like you know does that does that is that a thing you know i mean and, <laughs> and we evidently, find out if it's it, a thing it, yeah based on the bond price it's not a thing and if you look at you know argentina's bonds yeah, this still is a company that's defaulted four times in a century on their debt. Um, you know, as to how much froth there is out there, the big question is where is it? Because if it's in sort of the high yield bond sector, you're not seeing it quite as much. Even with the collapse in triple C uh, yields that you've seen, a lot of that stemmed from the energy sector, and energy prices have gone up substantially. And so, you know, if they stay at this level, they're probably in pretty good shape, right? Um, whereas in the triple B segment, the lowest rating on the uh, investment grades uh, tier, there could potentially be more risk. Or you know, is the risk from rates? I think that that's the issue that people don't know. Where is that froth at a time when nobody that I know of yeah. sees a recession within the next two months, three and, months? And our colleague, James Crombie, I think it was, who, who called the market almost schizophrenic. Um, Joel, because what we see is these issues don't slowly bleed into the market. 
it's like bang all of a sudden there's a problem and we saw it with toys r us which one minute is trading close to par then the next minute it's down and down hard and joel you mentioned a tire company Yep. out of nowhere. American Tire Distribution, which uh, had a bond. Uh, the 2022 was at par, or a little over par. Uh, Goodyear announces that they're getting into the business that they're in, uh, distributing tires, uh, and the bond got cut in half. That was uh, an amazing. Basically, they sell tires, and the main tire producer was like, you can't sell our tires. And boom, the company disappears. And, and people aren't <laughs> seeing these issues come up on the horizon. Now, maybe that's kind of some kind of black swan event for that company that you couldn't foresee. But I think it's really interesting that we're not pricing anything for potential risk. We're either pricing it for perfection, and then all of a sudden we need to price it for, for what's right in front of us, which is the potential for a real problem. Um, Joel Levinson sticking with me alongside Lisa Abramovitz. Next up on the program, we'll run you through what you need to look out for in the day ahead. And not a whole lot. It's a quiet end to the week. So we'll wrap up some of what we've seen so far this week as well. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio, 548 in the city. At a close today, the FTSE 100 up by a half of 1%. Helped out by some of the miners out there. They're the big movers on the FTSE 100. Also helped out by a weaker pound. Post Carney, post Bank of England, post keep rates on hold and pretend they're going to go higher and no one believes you. Uh, sterling lower to 134.99, down by a third of 1%. Am I saying too much here, Lisa? Am I telling people what I really think too much about the Bank of England? Not enough. And its shoddy go, guidance? you go. I just think the guidance has been abysmal for, for four years. So are you pro or con? Okay. I'm not getting your true true feelings here, John. No, I just think it has. And I think that's the argument out there at the moment. A lot of people are confused. And the news conference that was on earlier, many, many really, really good journalists. And can I just say, the press pack at the Bank of England are one of the best press packs I've ever been a part of. The questions are pointed. People always follow up really well. And everyone acts as almost sort of a, sort of a, a team, a choreographed team, to get the best out of the news conference. And there were some great questions, and he just didn't want to answer them you know what i thought was interesting is the dual role of being realistic and giving true guidance and being a cheerleader and trying to give people enough confidence to go out and do their thing and try to keep the economy chugging along and and i think that that's sort of like it's a hard it's a hard needle to thread and you can kind of feel that in every press conference when there's data that's not that great you have to wonder are they trying to just sort of boost confidence unilaterally to get the economy going or are they being honest with us I don't know I, I mean I, I sense they're being honest at the time they're telling us what they think they're being honest about that I can't question that I'm just saying that their honesty has misled a lot of people yeah but, you know, so, they say but the Fed's dated, gotten it wrong too they say they're dead to dependent and then they tell you not to worry about Q1 and ignore the data. Essentially, that's the message that comes from the Bank of England. Ignore the Q1 data, but by the way, we're data dependent. What they're asking us to do is to trust their interpretation of the data at any given time. <laughs> that's not guidance. That's not any kind of guidance. They're also asking us to prepare for higher interest rates. They've been telling us to do that for four Years. So do you think that they're worse than the Fed with that? Well, rates are now where they were four years ago. We can't say the same about the Fed. 
Fair. The Fed have actually hiked interest rates. Now, there is one thing that shines bright, of course. It is Brexit. But ultimately, there was still this massive fat window to get moving before Brexit. And they didn't take it. And it's not clear why they didn't take it. And here we are now talking about the next rate hike and the Bank of England backing off, backing off after a soft first quarter that they all think we should ignore, but clearly they aren't ignoring themselves. Think about that for a moment. They're telling us they were going to raise interest rates. Then Governor Carney backs off from raising interest rates and the data actually backs up that stance. But he says, Q1, you shouldn't probably pay much attention to. That makes no sense. Either Q1 matters or it doesn't. And if it doesn't matter, then you probably should have hiked today, shouldn't you? What are you waiting for? You know, I mean, that's, that would be what I would be asking in the news conference. If it doesn't matter, why are you on hold today? And if you're on hold today, how do you know you're gonna, we should get ready? Why is the bias for higher rate, rate hikes in the future when the economy is moving the other way? How can you say that the probability is that we're probably going to see the next moves of rate hike, not a rate cut, when the data is moving against you? Joel, what's your passionate take on the Bank of England? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as strong as John's, but I do believe that uh, John makes a great point of transparency and clarity uh, is what gives you credibility. And here's a case where you don't have that. Right? No. So I, I, I totally understand John's frustration with, uh, with that with that. And, and his whole argument today, his whole argument was this isn't for the city. We've got our other audiences and households and people understand us. They need to get ready for higher rates. Yeah, they do. And I just wonder how many people have taken out a higher rate, fixed rate mortgage over the last four years because the Bank of England has told you to get ready for higher rates that never yeah. came. I, th I think that that's a really compelling uh, argument. I also think interesting to note earlier this week, there was data that came out showing that British home prices posted their biggest monthly drop in almost eight years. And I wonder how much that type of data is also filtering in because, you know, they don't know what's going to happen with the financial sector. You are getting, uh, you know, companies moving jobs out of, uh, out of the city. I just wonder how much they're looking at that and thinking, well, we don't want to just accelerate that by, by hiking too soon. This housing market looked frothy as soon as Governor Carney took over, 2013, 2014, 2015. And the Bank of England, instead of raising interest rates, opted to introduce macroprudential policy and started to try and tame, temper mortgage supply. They went after supply instead of going after price. And house prices continue to go up. After Brexit, I think full credit due to the governor of the Bank of England. He came out, he was the only man standing. The chancellor disappeared, the prime minister quit, and he stood in front of everyone and said, we've got this. And for many people, that was the right thing. But what they did was just juice credit. If you watch what happened after Brexit, credit growth in the United Kingdom just exploded. Savings went down. Things did not look pretty. If the economy held up, it's because credit growth exploded. And now, what are we doing? We're sitting here talking about the housing market going down. They should have done something about this when London house prices were going up 20% a year in some places back in 2013. That's when they should have acted. That's when things were getting frothy. And they didn't do anything. Governor Carney ultimately has talked a lot, but done very little. And that's not an opinion. That's just a fact. He's talked about raising interest rates since 2014. He cut them before he raised them. And we're back to square one again. And he's still talking about the same story. More rate hikes are coming. Get ready for more rate hikes. Well, we're waiting. And we're waiting. And nothing's happening, Lisa. So if you're in the market right now and you're trading sterling, I know he's not talking to you apparently today. He's talking to households and, and people. 
in the United Kingdom. But if you're in the market, do you believe him? If you believed him, cable wouldn't be down south of 135. So I think it's another fact today. He's talked a lot. He hasn't delivered. And no one believes him right now in the FX market because sterling's weaker. It ain't stronger. Isn't that the bottom line? Yeah, of course. That's what I was going to say. All right. So I'll just do this myself next time. <laughs> <laughs> Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovitz. Get me into trouble. Joel Levinson, will you come back? Will you please come back? Anytime, John. Thank it's you. always my pleasure. I hope, I hope we can get you back on a weekly basis and we'll get Lisa to say something next time. Oh, come on. Come on. Yeah, what was I going to say? Come on. <laughs> the City of London. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.